Welcome to Zooming In, a show about the lives and feelings of regular people who are like you and me, people seeking connection and love, people who are just muddling along trying to be human. I'm your host, Sison Kim Simang. Yeah, I don't remember much of the move to Australia. Do remember some, like the only thing that sticks out to me is this really bad joke. I think I was six at the time, so <laughs> it's excusable, but yeah, the word Aussie kind of sounds like to take a, to take a shit in Cantonese, Aussie. Garrick is softly spoken with a gentle presence and a great sense of humor. Conversation comes very easily with him. He's full of surprises and stories that you wouldn't really expect. His family moved to Australia in 1988, when Garrick was only six years old. Like many migrants, his parents made the move so that their kids could have more opportunities. Garrick was pretty young when they moved, so he doesn't really remember much. I remember being in the car and making that joke and the family laughing. And that's like the only kind of recollection that I have of the move. Garrick's family was made up of his mom, his dad and his big brother. They settled in Morley, a suburb about 10 kilometers northeast of Perth, that has a large migrant population. His childhood sounds like it was quiet and pretty normal. My brother was uh, a bookworm. He loved to read. He, he was always inside reading, and I really liked being outside. I used to get into a lot of sports, like watch a lot of basketball and cricket and stuff, and then I'd want to go outside and play. And my brother never really wanted to come outside and play. I remember going outside and like playing cricket by myself or playing basketball by myself a lot because he never, he didn't really want to come out. He was just, he liked to stay inside and read. Garrick has memories of feeling excluded in those early primary school days. There was a bit of bullying and sometimes he felt isolated. Both at school and at home, he spent a lot of time on his own. He kind of had to learn how to make do by himself. My mum was a stay-at-home mum. She's very loving and very sweet, very warm person. My main memories of her from childhood are just her being on the phone all the time, talking to friends and family. She was always on the phone, chatting to people. She's very chatty. And my dad was, um, I'd say he was the strong, silent type. He wasn't the the most talkative person, especially to us kids. I don't think he had <laughs> much to talk about with us kids or he couldn't think of things to talk about or whatever. And he was always outside as well. He was always doing stuff outside. He, would, he was a really handy person. He really liked working with his hands. And he was always building things or making things or doing some kind of work outside. And he's, I think he saw his role as a provider and not so much as the, uh, like an emotional caregiver or that type of thing. A few years after Garrick finished university, he left Perth and he's lived outside the city where he grew up for most of his adult life. He's got a really cool job managing renewable energy and energy access projects, and he's worked all over the world. When the pandemic started, he was living in Laos. He thought things would blow over quickly, but then the pandemic unfolded and things started to shut down and he realized, huh, his window for getting out was closing. So he packed his bags, leaving his apartment as it was, in the hopes that in a couple of months, things would settle. He headed back to Perth. But like most of the world, Garrick underestimated how long things would go on for. It's now been almost two years since he moved home, back into his childhood bedroom. 
For some people, having this time at home would be weird, but kind of sweet. For Garrick, it's been really tough. It was quite difficult in some ways, quite comforting in some ways. When I moved back, I moved back into my old bedroom and all this, all my stuff is still there. All my stuff from growing up in childhood and everything is still sitting all around, all around the room. So the room is, uh, is a small bedroom with a single bed in the corner. Uh, it still has the sheets that I grew up using. And there's a computer desk with a bookshelf on it. There's a cabinet in the room. There's a, a notice board, pin board thing with a bunch of mementos and things hung up on, on pins. I can't remember where most of those came from now. Yeah, it's just a small bedroom that has a lot of remnants from other parts of my life that I never look at and have just gathered over the time um, or over the, the shelves in the, in the cabinet and under the bed. It has been challenging because it's forced me to come back to a place that actually gives me a lot of anxiety. So I think Perth gives me anxiety. There's been times where I've been flying home and feeling just on the on the flight and seeing Perth and just like feeling anxiety come up from just getting close to being back home. Cause I spent I've spent a lot of time outside of Perth now. I lived in Alice Springs for a year and a half before my dad got sick and then I came home for a year. And then I left for seven years. There's a lot of associations in Perth for me with difficult times of my life and difficult feelings. For anyone looking from the outside in, it would be hard to figure out why Perth makes Garrick so anxious. He had a normal suburban childhood with a supportive family and an extended community. And then he grew up and he went to uni and he was professionally successful. He traveled the world and he went on lots of adventures. But the truth is, underneath the surface, Garrick has always struggled with something deeper. So I'd come to the belief over many, many years that I was a really shy and introverted person, and that's just how it was. I had always wanted to live a big, full life full of adventure, but I just couldn't do it. Then one day I stumbled across the symptoms of social anxiety on the internet and was shocked at how perfectly they, they described me. Social anxiety, or social phobia, as it's also known, was more than just shyness. It's chronic and excessive fear of being judged negatively by others. For me, and the roughly 5% of the population with social anxiety, it manifests as a vicious cycle of anxious thoughts, the physical symptoms brought on by the fight-or-flight response, and avoidance and safety behaviours. Garrick's journey with social anxiety is ongoing, but he's kind of fearless when it comes to addressing it. He's super focused on living this big, bold life. And a big reason why this matters so much for him is because of his dad and what he went through. I was living in Alice Springs at the time, and I remember getting this call from my brother, and he said, something's wrong with dad. And he wasn't very specific, and... He said that dad needed some tests and things. And then I think the next day 
uh, got another call and he, yeah, my brother said that he had a, a brain tumor, had brain cancer, and it's one of the, like, it's one of the most aggressive ones, glioblastoma, multiform, which is um, a grade four brain cancer, which is like the worst ones. So he needed emergency surgery. And so I, I basically flew back the next day for that, to be there for the surgery. The thing about my dad is he, he was a cheap ass. So he, he actually, um, he used to have private health insurance, but then he never used it because he was so healthy. So he stopped his private health insurance. And then like a, a year, a couple of years later, he got brain cancer. I think they weren't aiming to remove the tumor. They wanted to get like a, do a biopsy. Somehow they caused a brain hemorrhage and yeah, basically my dad, uh, after the surgery, he wasn't able to walk or talk and he was in the can't remember it's called the ICU but he was in there for six weeks being monitored very closely and he wasn't improving and they basically said that you know he's going to pass away within a few months or whatever. The doctors decided the best place for Garrick's dad was at home with his family so they sent a bed a wheelchair all the things that the family needed to make sure that he was going to be comfortable in his last few months. In Garrick's eyes they were giving up on his dad so they started doing their own research, looking at the medical literature and listening to stories from other people who had lived through cancer. There's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of people that have been able to survive and to find out what they did uh, was really useful for us. Basically, there's a lot of early research that is not that conclusive, but there might be, it shows there's a possible it could have a possible effect. So there's a lot of supplements, off-label medicines, a lot of different treatments and things. And one of the things that I think we learned uh, from one of the survivors is to basically throw the, throw the kitchen sink at it because the way cancer works is it evolves, especially very fast-growing cancers. They evolve around, if you target it with one modality, it's going to evolve around it. So you've got to chuck everything at the same time. Garrick and his brother were tenacious, but listening to Garrick talk about it, you get the sense of how tender they were as well. We tried all these things and <clears throat> basically something worked because he, uh, we were also, what else were we doing? We were also trying to get him to move better because he was just lying in bed all day. Like he wasn't able to walk and stuff like that. So I bought a little portable cycling machine. It's just like something you could cycle, you can put on the ground, you can cycle with your legs or with your hands. Like I would just hold it in front of him and he would cycle with his hands and then put it at the end of his bed. Initially, he couldn't move it really. He was kind of like we were assisting him to move it. But over time, we did that every day and he got more and more strength back. Yeah, it was like multiple things that were happening at the same time. So one is the movement, his strength got better. And eventually we got a walker and we put it next to his bed and we helped him get onto the walker and he would be able to shuffle a few steps and 
And yeah, slowly, slowly he got better and able to, to walk again. Yeah, so he got better over probably a few months. Um, he got to the point where he could walk. He didn't have much stamina. He couldn't run that kind of thing, but he could, he could walk around the house. And then the other thing that improved was his speech. So initially he couldn't say anything and he, and what I did, I had this idea to get a whiteboard and I'd ask him to write some stuff and he would try to write and he would write the same letter over and over again. Like it was kind of something was stuck in his brain. He couldn't really write. And that improved over time as well. And actually the thing that came back before writing English was writing Chinese. So he grew up going to a Chinese school. So he was able to, <laughs> I still have photographs of those early days. It was like, there was so much hope and like happiness amongst the family, seeing that, seeing that kind of thing. It's amazing to be a part of. It's probably some of my happiest kind of times and that being a part of that, seeing that like at some point, I think he said something. I can't remember what, yeah. It just like with everything else, it was just like a little bit of time got better. I think the kind of like the peak was when, uh, he, this was when he was able to walk, he was in the karaoke room and, um, and my mom turned on the karaoke system and, and my dad was able to sing, uh, sing some songs. And I have a video of this actually, and my mom was crying. It was such a beautiful thing to see. They had made such huge progress with their dad, but they were also aware that non-surgical interventions would only work for so long. So they made plans for surgery. Brain surgery isn't exactly cheap, and Garrick's dad didn't have any health insurance but they decided to go for the most well-known neurosurgeon in the country. They flew to Sydney to see Charlie Teo, and he operated, removing as much of the tumor as he could. Immediately after the surgery, Garrick's dad was talking better, and a few days after that, he was walking better too. Then he started radiotherapy and chemotherapy. It was an extensive and expensive process, but it actually worked. Garrick's dad ended up living for another five and a half years when he was only supposed to live another few months after the original diagnosis. Before the surgery, Garrick hadn't been very close to his dad. Remember, growing up, his father had been the strong, silent type. But his illness had brought them closer. In fact, it had made everyone closer. Yeah, I think it brought us a lot closer together. I mean, at that point, I, you know, I was living in Alice Springs and I... I don't think I was calling home that much and was living my own life. And they had actually come, visited me in Alice Springs and we'd gone to Uluru, like me and dad and one of my aunties. At that point, I didn't commun like we didn't have great communication with dad and dad was always, yeah, difficult to communicate with because he, he, he wasn't able to talk about his feelings basically. <laughs> He's very you know, conditioned in the old, fashion, old school Chinese way to not talk about your feelings, to not, it's a lot of things you, know, you can't talk about basically in that kind of culture. And I think we were really different as well, like different, different interests, different people. And so it was 
hard to find something to connect with him on. But yeah, when he got sick, he, you know, he'd always seen himself as a provider, as strong and independent, and he suddenly became um, completely dependent on us for everything. And I think that was really difficult for him. It's one of the difficult parts. Like my mum would tell us every day that she loved us, but my dad would never say those words. <laughs> Not part of his vocabulary. But after he got sick, my mum would force him to say it. So he would tell us he loved us every day, kind of. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I think it helps yeah, open him up a bit. Garrick's dad got so much better after the operation that he was able to travel back to Malaysia. The family decided to take a trip together to his hometown. And one night, while they were all sitting around in the bedroom of one of their relatives, Garrick took out his phone and he decided to record his dad telling stories about his life. I had this app. I think it was called StoryCore. And they have some recommended questions. And I went through the recommended questions. And so one of them was, uh, what, what was one of your greatest accomplishments in life? And he said, I didn't accomplish anything, frankly speaking. I'm a loser. And that was like such a heartbreaking moment to hear him say that. And I have the interview still. Uh, like, it's still on the app or whatever. I've listened to it a few times. And yeah, it's just very heartbreaking to hear him say, say that, that he didn't feel like he accomplished anything in his life. Garrick felt so sad for his dad. It was hard to know that this man who had raised two successful sons and had been brave enough to move across the world to make their lives better considered himself to be a failure. Garrick wondered whether he would be in the same position in 30 years' time, looking back regretfully, worrying about why he hadn't been the man that he had always wanted to be. Going through that whole experience with Dad was like a huge turning point in my life. Yeah, that kind of realisation that I needed to make some changes if I wanted to live the life that, that I want to live, like live a fulfilling life. Yeah, obviously I hadn't accomplished anything <laughs> back then, that age. But that's not really what it's about, I think. I'm not trying to accomplish anything now, but it's just like living a full life is, is the accomplishment, I guess. When he was diagnosed and everything, we had a bit of a difficult relationship. Like it wasn't you know, a bad relationship or anything, but we just didn't connect on much weren't very connected. I always did feel this obligation. It's a very Asian thing to, to the parents. And I knew that if, you know, if they ever needed me to help with them with something, that I would be there. I feel like at that point, when I went back, it was very much obligation-based. I didn't spend the full five and a half years with, with Dad. I spent a year at home before I went overseas and I think you know what he went through really helped me to realize that I needed to uh, go overseas and do all these things that I wanted to do um, that I had been maybe too afraid to do so he helped me a lot with that as well so I have a lot of appreciation for him um, as a result of this whole whole journey and yeah a lot more love for him 
now than when he was um, diagnosed. So inspired by his dad and determined to build a life that he could look back on and feel proud of, Garrick decided to address his own social anxiety. One of the things I did while I was back home for that year, um, like helping dad out, was uh, I started this group therapy course for social anxiety. Yeah, and it was like an in-person group that would meet once a week. And it taught me a lot about social anxiety. And um, I think one of the main things, one of the really helpful things was the exposure therapy that they would put us through. So as part of that group therapy course, we would have to go down the street, we'd go into a random shop, we'd talk to a random person. It was all these things that um, we had to do to kind of like tackle that social anxiety. Like some, some of the kind of challenges that we had to do while we were in this group on the street, we're like singing in the street and all these, yeah, these random things. I don't think I, I had the courage back then. I don't think I did the singing in the street, but um, I don't think I would have a problem with it. <laughs> I think there was so many things that I found difficult in that, in that group therapy course, but it was like, it was the impetus. It was like the start that made me uh, realize I could get better, I guess, could tackle this thing. After his dad died, Garrick was in and out of Perth. He came back for short visits and to see his mum, but he was really living this big life outside of the town where his family had settled. Back in Perth, because of COVID, Garrick quickly realized that the tools that he had learned to use to manage his social anxiety when he was overseas, they didn't work so well here. He had learned how to manage his anxiety, but he still really didn't understand where that anxiety came from. By leaving Perth, it was like he had avoided having to really face up to the truth. He was coping, thriving in many ways in his life overseas, but being back in Perth meant that Garrick had to unsuppress a lot of childhood memories. So it's been hard coming to terms with the fact that the social anxiety that has plagued him for so much of his life began right here, in this bedroom, in this house, on this street, and in the classroom down the road. So now he's opening the door and he's looking inside, partly because he doesn't really have any other choice, but mostly because finally he's ready to. He's gone down a whole bunch of different paths, seeking answers, different kinds of activities, different kinds of therapies. Garrick wants to get to the root of the fear and the shame that has haunted him for his whole life. You know, there was a time when I was a kid that I experienced a lot of pain and hurt and yeah and then the social anxiety was kind of like a protective mechanism to kind of prevent that happening by avoiding people by being very cautious but also just um, overthinking uh, you know being kind of predictive about what other people were thinking being just a lot of um yeah, kind of self-judgment as well. Just all these kind of mechanisms that that go around what social anxiety is um, to prevent me from getting hurt by other people. I mean, I think 
yeah, you have to you have to connect with those parts, and you have to kind of integrate them, or you have to understand them. You have to yeah, bring compassion to them, and that's like that's how you you heal those parts. There are no clear answers, but Garrick feels like he's getting close. Being back in Perth has forced him to remember who he was and to accept, for that shy child, being teased for having a funny accent or ignored by popular kids, that would have been excruciating. He wasn't his brother who could hide away in books or his mom who could chat all day on the phone. In some ways, he was much more like his dad. He had big feelings and he found it hard to express them. So he's had to look at his younger self with compassion he might not always have the answers, and there's no finishing line to living with social anxiety, but it's a process, a process of learning to live with it, understanding yourself, being patient with yourself, and most of all, being kind and compassionate to yourself. I have a, a four-year-old nephew, my brother's kid, and I love him so much. He's like so sweet and adorable. And what's so special about him and probably you know a lot of kids is they're so authentically themselves and he's so authentically himself all the time uh, there's like no pretense there he's not you know acting a certain way to to avoid certain consequences or whatever he's just himself and whatever happens happens I think I kind of remember being that way as a child as well so I can relate to that kind of uh, freedom and just being fully immersed in life and enjoying, enjoying everything, um, which is what I really appreciate when I spend time with him is he gets so much joy from little things, um, from everything. So, yeah, like flowers and leaves and everything in the environment, just being alive. As an uncle... I'm hoping I can, you know, help guide him and provide wisdom from my life, lessons from my life to help him grow up with maybe less fear, less anxiety, to be more fully himself, but even just understanding things like how to deal with uh, difficult feelings, yeah, I do have that the fear that, you know, life will happen and it'll kind of like extinguish this special uniqueness, you know, authenticity that I see in him. In him. Yeah, I, I just want to kind of reinforce the message to him that it's okay to, to be who he is, basically. There is no doubt that Garrick's experience with social anxiety has contributed to the sensitive person that he is today. He's able to pick up on how other people feel, to empathize with them, and whatever big and complicated emotions that they might be feeling. So although being in Perth hasn't been easy, these past 18 months, spending time with his nephew has been pretty special. I think Garrick's nephew is pretty lucky. He has an uncle who feels it all too, and he's going to make sure that his little nephew even when he's not so little anymore, knows that he's never, ever alone. This podcast was produced by the Centre for Stories on Wajak Noongar Buja in Western Australia with generous funding from Lottery West. 
The Center for Stories believes in storytelling as a way to build more inclusive communities. Special thanks to our storyteller for this episode, Garrick. And to our production team, executive producer, Kara Jensen-McKinnon, audio engineer, Mason Velios, scripting and interviewing by Sison Kim Simang and Claudia Mancini. Head to centerforstories.com to listen to more stories or to make a tax-deductible donation. Thanks for listening. Thank you.